I am Anthony Fowler. I'm Viola Judah. I am Will Howell, and this is not another politics podcast. And we're going to do what we regularly do, which is think about a piece of scholarship and reflect on it and what it means for today and what evidence it brings to bear. But we're doing it slightly differently today. We're in a ballroom, for starters, and moreover, we're all wearing the same socks. Yes. Um, We have... We have new, not another politics podcast, swag. Um, I feel like we're raising our game. Yes. <laughs> so we're going to talk today about a paper, uh, a really famous paper, by one of the most important scholars of Congress of the last half century, Dick Fenno. When you look at what was going on in the 1970s, there were two big books written, one called The Electoral Connection by David Mayhew from Yale University, and the other by uh, Dick Fenno um, called Homestyle. And that book, that home, Homestyle, was based off of the paper that we're going to be talking about today, this US House members in their constituencies and exploration. We talk a lot about Congress on the show. And I think we usually focus on what the members of Congress do in Washington, how they vote, uh, whether they are polarized or not. And uh, this paper really took us in a very different direction. So, uh, so, so, so it was interesting to read. The paper basically starts by saying, well, let's see what Congress people do at home. What do they do during this time that we tend to think about as leisure? Uh, How do they perceive their constituencies? How do they talk to them? What do they tell them? How do they explain their votes to them? Tell us, yeah, tell us a little bit more about the methodology. This is different from the kind of paper we normally cover. What does Fenno actually do? And how does he describe? I'm going to read a quote here. (laughs) And this is is one of the most often quoted things from Fenno. He says, the research method has been largely one of soaking and poking, or just hanging around. Yeah, we couldn't That's get away with saying that. Which is, <laughs> we couldn't, if we had, if our lead in for one of our papers that we wrote today was we're gonna soak and poke and hang around, around. we get into all kinds of trouble. It's, it's laughable. Well, well but, but there's, here's what the, he's doing. He's going in and he's saying, look, you dear political scientists who are fixating on roll call votes and what's going on within Congress, it turns out members spend roughly a third of their time going home to their districts, and they're not just going home to hang out with family and friends, they're doing work there, and they're engaging their constituents. And what we need to do, if we want to understand Congress as an institution, and the members who occupy that institution, is make sense of what those kinds of engagements look like. And so what Fenno did is he uh, joined forces with and followed around about 15 members and just soaked and poked. He, he went in without <laughs> priors and said, I'm just going to see what they're doing and try to make sense of it. And this soaking, it sounds scientific, soaking and poking. Like people quote, like this is my method, like it sounds like you're doing, he, but then he just admits it two, two words later. I was just hanging around. Yeah, right, right, but without pretense, <laughs> right? I'm not going in with a set of priors about what they're actually doing. I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to let their activities sort of speak for themselves, and it's going to be my job to try to organize the observations in a way that's compelling, and the product of which is the paper that's before us. And this was a major undertaking. You said 15 members of Congress, m- many trips, right? This was Many, many trips. This was over multiple years. He travels with members across he, the country. And, and he gets this incredible access that other political scientists didn't have. He's spending a lot of time with members of Congress. I don't think 
How much time have you spent with members of Congress? Here <laughs> and there, you know, I don't if I said I want to just hang out with you for the weekend and watch you watch, I don't think they would say that sounds great, right? Yeah, come yeah. along. <laughs> What's interesting to me is that the way we tend to do research today is that we tend to focus on things that we can measure because we need to measure things, we need to have data, we need to run regressions. And he focused on things that are really, really hard to measure. He gave us a glimpse into something that we don't otherwise see. And I, it's hard for me to even imagine how we would get a glimpse into that without having him poking and soaking. One of the important findings has to do with how legislators see their constituents. And they see the sort of districts as a whole, there's that. But what he describes is a set of kind of concentric circles. There's the district as a whole, but then there are kind of core members and then essential members that require varying levels of attention that inform how much time they spend with people, what kinds of relationships they, 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 they try to nurture. And there's a curious finding which says that there are these core members of their district, the people who matter the most, the people who are closest to them are also the ones that they spend the most amount of time with. And that's kind of curious from the perspective of a political scientist, wherein you might say, when you go home, you should find that pivotal member of your constituency, that person whose support you have to win over, right? Because the marginal resource that you allot should be directed towards that person whose vote, not who you can count on, you've already got in your back pocket, or the person you'll never win over. It should be the person who, if I spend a little bit of time with, I take them out for a drink, that then I'll, I'll bring them over to my side. But that's not what he says, that, that you actually spend a lot of time with these people who, you've are, who support you already have. This description of uh, districts as uh, circles is, is very different from how I tend to think about voters when I think about how to model uh, legislators and representatives. So we tend to think about voters as aligned on some ideological, uh, along some ideological dimension, and then we plop the representative somewhere on this dimension, and, and voters vote for whoever is the closest to them. When representatives in this paper talk about how they perceive their voters, they, they don't really talk about this ideological dimension. They say, my core supporters are the people that I grew up with, or people that, I, that are from the same village, or the same county, or the same school, or you know, had children on the same sports team. So sure, maybe there's a correlation between um, people's ideology and the school they go to and, and what activities they engage in, but uh, ideology is not the primary organizing principle when they think about their constituency. And as you will said, they say, you know, there are those people that we really know very well and they really like us, we have a great report and they're going to vote for us, but as long as we keep this report with them. So they really feel like core supporters are not to be taken for granted. Those are the people that they really have to talk to and mingle with and have coffee and drinks and so on, uh, because that's what makes them core supporters. So I, I wonder if you have... You yeah, know. I do. I have a lot of thoughts on this. I mean, one, one question is, is this just, is this the self-serving thing you tell yourself? Like, it's more fun to talk to your core supporters and your friends. And so you tell yourself, like, oh, this was, this was, it's really important that I go have beers with my old friends and, and you know, like, when, when I go back home to San Diego, I see my friends. I don't see the people that I don't like. And we go to the Padres game and we talk. And it's, if, if I'm a member of Congress, you're like, oh, this is, this is useful for me because I have to really, but, and in fact, this comes up a little bit in the, in, in the piece where some members of Congress say, I got to go to this dinner. It's with this group. 
it's not going to be very fun, it's going to be a bad meal, but we got to go to it, and sure enough, they don't have very much fun, those might be the events you need that are most important electorally, and they just prefer not to. So they, members of Congress, suffer from the same limitations of the rest of us, which is they'd rather hang out with their friends, even if that's not what's best for their careers. That's very much, though, in the spirit of what Fenno's doing here, though. He wants to say, let's put these concerns about ideology aside for a moment. They're overstated by my fellow political scientists. And moreover, let's try to understand the relationship between members of Congress and their constituents from the constituents' perspective. So there's not a lot of kind of critical interrogation of why in this paper about why they assume these views, but they're drawn to their core constituents, right. and he wants right. to lift that up. Right. And it may be for the reasons you identify. Just the drinks are more fun <laughs> when I'm with my old-time right. friends right. who've been with me all along. But but he takes them at face value, right? Right. The other, I mean, the other response I have is that is whether or not we're wrong to think about ideology being along a line. We know that members of Congress do tend to be ideologically pretty extreme relative to the general public. In 1977, that was a little bit less true than it is now, but still, you know, still a typical member of Congress is pretty far to the left of the median voter or pretty far to the right, depending on which party they're from. If we think of it that way, they're describing their kind of circles of support. They could just be thinking, I'm over here on the ideological spectrum, and these are my core supporters, and you know, they're kind of moving down that ideological line. They're not talking about it in the way that a formal modeler would talk about it, even though Fenno was from Rochester, which was the, the home of formal modeling. But it's, it's conceivable that that's largely what they're talking about. With some idiosyncratic, you know, they also, in addition to getting people to vote for them, they need people to to write them checks and to, you know, and so of course you're more likely to get checks from your friends and things like that. But is it possible that that's what they're talking about? Because it's not, it's not entirely idiosyncratic. It's not just geography. It's, well, there's this group, there's this union, there's this interest group that's in my district and they're over here. And they don't say over here on the line. They say they're the third circle away from me, which could be the same thing, no? Yeah, I think, I think the, there is probably some correlation, but if I were to think about this in terms of ideology, and if indeed the core supporters are the people who are really the closest to me in terms of ideology, then I would expect um, those core supporters to be there for me no matter what I do. And uh, what, what Fenno seems to emphasize is that it's really important in the minds of these uh, representatives to mingle with those core supporters. And may, maybe you're right, maybe they're just thinking that's important because they like it, but it seems that they believe that uh, those are not supporters that's going to stay there if the relationship, the personal relationship is going to be severed. So, so yeah, I wonder, I wonder to what extent we, uh, you know, we are fine still thinking about this ideological dimension as the main organizing principle, or to what extent we are missing something uh, as political scientists. Yeah, this, this is where the tension plays out. He's saying, uh, let's put these ideological concerns aside, there's something relational or something sociological in play. And you're saying, no, 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 I can understand that relational, those sociological dimensions as having an ideological component. But he's, so, so round two for Fenno in this same kind of tension is he comes out and says, the reason why I'm going back to spend time with my constituents obviously is to secure their support in some way, but the way that I secure their support is by gaining their trust. And how do I build trust? It's not by establishing that your beliefs and my beliefs are one and the same, and that therefore you can count on me to cast the votes that are gonna best represent your policy preferences. It's by establishing that uh, we both come from the same part of the state, and that we have some shared history, and I'm a person, and you're a person, and that's 
he's sort of round two of this effort, I think, in this paper, to sort of push these things that we are accustomed to talking about as political scientists, about ideology and partisanship, sort of to the back burner, and to say, no, here again, we see that even in the effort to cultivate support, it's about trust, and the foundations of trust are not just about shared policy preferences, they're about relations and shared history and... I've waited too long. I've got, to, I've got to take Ben out of task here. I've got to give him a hard time just for a second. So, and this, these are concerns that would apply to most qualitative field research, which is, which is a common thing that people do. To what, to what extent should we worry that members of Congress are showing Fenno what they want to show him? They're telling him what they think makes them look good. And to what extent is he making a mistake by more or less taking what they say at face value? There was no chance he was going to write this, you know, write this study and he was going to conclude from it that members of Congress don't really care about their constituents or aren't really worried about building up trust with their constituents. And instead, they just, they just want to raise money and they just want to do whatever they want to do and they want to advance the, goal, the agenda of their party. Like there, he was never going to conclude that from this study. Because no member of Congress, even if that's true, is going to tell him that. They're going to say what they think makes them look good. They're going to sh take him to events that make them look good and so forth. Maybe that's also why they go to a lot of events with supporters. They don't go to events with opponents because that's going <laughs> to embarrass them in front of Fenno. And I know the, the political science gods are going to smoke. They're going to rain down. <laughs> yeah, so, 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 saying so, yeah, Absolutely, but I think there, when we look at his findings, there are findings where we should worry about that more and findings where we might worry about that less. So going back to trust, uh, it's not a priori obvious to me that as a, a member of Congress, I would present myself in a better light if I said that all that's important for my re-election is that I build trust with my constituency, as opposed to saying uh, what's important is that I convey to them that my policy positions are similar to what they want. I think both of those sound, put them in good light. I think both of those uh, would put them, you know, would, would paint a picture of someone who cares about the constituency. The latter story could be, I mean, if, suppose, suppose what's going on is I've got to meet with my group of, this interest group that supports me and convince them that I'm going to do their bidding even though that's not what the median member of my district wants, them to, wants me to do. That's not a favorable thing to tell Fenno, is I make sure I cater to these interest groups that donate to me. No, so but he you, doesn't you, say you, it like that. He says, I have to build trust. I have to make sure, you know, I have to convince them that I'm a good, competent guy, as opposed to I'm going to do their bidding in Washington. But you can, you can tell a story of, like, I believe in the values that you believe. I believe... You don't want redistribution. I also believe uh, we shouldn't have redistribution. You are against abortion. I really am pro-life. And, and uh, it seems that they are not saying those things. And it seems that when they focus on issues, when they say, I do talk about issues with my uh, voters, they say, but the delivery is very important. It's less about exactly what I deliver and how I deliver. And just one, one last quote, if I can, it's not going to be quote, it's going to be paraphrasing, but he, he talks to one um, uh, representative who says, look, sometimes I even make a point of telling my constituencies that I disagree with them, because then that gives me more leeway later in Congress. But as long as they trust me, as long as they think I'm a good person, they are going to vote for me. Yes. This is that home style that he's making reference to. So the piece about, I mean, there's an interesting piece that you, you brought up, which is that the building of the trust and building of the support isn't just in the service of getting reelected. It's that it gives me leeway to vote how I want. And the David Mayhew story 
about the electoral connection, right? It's that members of Congress are tied to their constituents in ways that force them to behave again and again in the votes that they cast and, and the resources they allocate and the time that they spend in ways that immediately attend to the preferences of their constituents. Fenno is saying, no, there's actually some space in between those two. There's an, there's an opportunity for what we might think of as being leadership or discretionary decision-making. Do you, on the basis of the findings here, buy that? Like, do you see that, like, that's really, I get the trust and I can go do, do the right thing as I understand it, which can be understood apart from what my constituents actually want, policy by policy. I completely buy Anthony's concerns, but I think that's an example where what they are saying is not necessarily putting them in the best possible light, because they, they do say this explicitly, they say, I actually can vote more or less the way I want. Of course, sometimes I don't want to vote differently than my constituency because I truly share their preferences, but sometimes I do. And, and they, they emphasize that as long as their voters trust them, that, that in the long run they are good people and they have good reasons for voting the way they vote, they can basically do whatever they want. And, and I thought that if they really wanted to paint themselves in a very good light, they wouldn't say that. And in a sense, uh, I think it's something worth investigating, or maybe we shouldn't take it at face value, but it's something worth investigating. To what extent the votes of the representatives do represent what the voters really want and, and how that later translates into support that they I receive. I think what they want their members, what, their, what they want their constituents to think is not, I take a poll on every bill and just do exactly what the majority says, but that I already intrinsically know what's best for the district. That's kind of what they're saying. They're saying that I, that I use my own judgment because I already intrinsically know what's right for all of you dum-dums out there. That's basically <laughs> <laughs> but, but there is a version, you can imagine, that, I mean, a storyline that could be told uh, when Fenno is accompanying these members back to Congress is one wherein the legislators go and sit before their constituents to try to understand the lives that they lead. And it's all about absorbing the knowledge of their constituents and saying, I'm going to take the fight back to Washington. And he doesn't, and that, that's a story that would certainly put them in a good light, but that he doesn't see. There's a kind of tension, there's space between the constituents and their legislators that's being played out in an authentic way, that's building of trust, which, I don't know, a priori, it didn't have to play out that way. And in that sense, there's some discovery in this exercise, even it's being, if it's being undertaken somewhat naively. So, so for me, as a person who tries to write formal models of how electoral competition works and, and how campaigns work, it, it was interesting to start thinking about to what extent uh, they do have this leeway, to what extent uh, their votes are translated into support uh, via this channel of trust and to what extent they can cultivate this channel of trust. So, so I, I found this very interesting. And, and again, I'm going to go back to this uh, representative who said it explicitly. He said, look, sometimes when I talk to people, I really make a point of telling them, I do not share your values. I do not, maybe not values. Values is a, a, values a, a, is too, that's a it's, bridge it's too far. Much. But I do, not, I, do not, I, I do not agree with you mm -hmm. on this position. Mm -hmm. um, because they say, once they know that I am a good person, but I'm not exactly like them, I'm not exactly sharing all the positions, then it, it's easier for me to justify my votes. And I thought this was very interesting. And again, it's one person we know, we don't trust anecdotes, but I think it's a good starting point to start thinking about uh, studying it more systematically. I mean, we've had a bunch of empirical research subsequent to this that shows, 
I mean, there's a famous APSR paper, out of step, out of office, right? That those legislators who deviate from the preferences and, and, and policy convictions of their constituents are not long for this world, at least politically. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Are you surprised that there's very little discussion of fundraising in the paper? I, I'm just curious. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Are, 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 is that a case where, the, where they're kind of, you know, they're, they're lying about their priorities? Or, or have things dramatically changed since the 70s? Because I would imagine if you actually followed around members of Congress today, they spend more than half their time raising money, often in very unglamorous ways, right? They're, they're in call centers, they're in dingy bars and things like that. What's your, what's your take on that? I don't know. Actually, I wasn't alive in the 70s. <laughs> Will? <laughs> I was, what was happening I was when you were in diapers? Well in 1977. No, I, wasn't, okay, I, was, I was long alive, out of diapers yeah. in 1977. Um, so I was struck by that. I mean, I was really struck uh -huh. by Here, the story is of legislators going back and breaking bread with their constituents and having coffee with them and meeting in, in living rooms. Yeah, it, it painted a political world that seems lovely. It, when you think about what this, the world that we live in now where there's lots of polarization among elites and all this attention to raising money and demagoguery and there's, so there's no, yeah, there's no fundraising happening here when you're going back to your constituents. No meeting with powerful interests no waiting in green rooms to get onto some media outlet that you that that is speaking to some core constituency. There's there's none of that. It's all face to face interactions in the service of trust building. Do you think when Fano left the room, they were like, okay, now we are we are <laughs> going to really need those checks, it. guys? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, this is a world before cable TV. This is we know that the amount of money that's having to be raised by legislators today is vastly higher than it was in the 70s. I mean, this is just in the aftermath of the rise of primaries, the, the widespread adoption of primaries. Um, and so in that sense, this could be an authentic representation of, or at least it's not all facade. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned um, cable news. So it's very interesting because um, Fano acknowledges that uh, times are changing, and he doesn't talk about Twitter, of course. He doesn't talk about cable news, but he talks about certain reforms that uh, were just recently passed in Congress at that time. And, and, and he says all those reforms are going to make Congress more accessible to people. They're going to be more informed about what's happening. And then he speculates what kind of effects this is going to have. And he says, well, when people can see what's happening in Congress, that's going to force uh, the representatives to actually uh, strike deals to work together to be, you know, to be cooperative. And, and he has this prediction of this beautiful world that follows, and here we are, 45 years later, and his prediction was completely off track. And I wondered to what extent, you know, we have a sense why, why it was so off track. And what, what did yeah. he see in, in the interaction? There's a logic there, right? That, that 
changing media is going to increase accountability and transparency, and that will increase the incentives to actually moderate, work together, accomplish things. Yeah, why? Yeah, why? Why? I think we all agree that he was wrong in that prediction. Why was he wrong about that prediction? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's, it's not just the rise of media. It's about the bifurcation of media, the tone of media, the, the, the things that are covered and not covered. It's not just the uh, investments in a, in a town square that brings everybody out and meaningfully engages with one another, which was a possibility. We could have gone down that road. We didn't go down that road. So that has to be a piece of it. But I, you, I guess... You could argue, I mean, you could argue that with the changes in media, there's actually less coverage of individual members of Congress. There's more coverage of, like, the most extreme or the most, you know, AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene. They're on TV a lot, but your member of Congress is not getting a lot of coverage, and your local newspaper's in decline, so they're not doing a good job covering what your member of Congress is doing. Yeah, this is, a, so this is another kind of... anticipate all of these changes. This is an undercurrent of this paper, is that mm -hmm. the, the engagement with the constituents happens one, one legislator at a time, and there's like this direct relationship. And so anything that the media might do would just sort of elevate and, and nurture that kind of connection. But instead, what we see is the rise of party brands and the nationalization of politics and the disproportionate attention paid to extremists, which is not in the service of constituents getting to know their legislator and vice versa in the world characterized by Fenno in this paper. But he, he has one other finding, which I think we might tie to what we were just talking about. So one, one thing that he finds consistently is that members of Congress build their uh, brand by portraying themselves as the only good and honest congressperson in this very corrupt institution. So everyone <laughs> seems to be building their own reputation on the, at the expense of the reputation of Congress. And it's, it's so interesting because this still seems to be true, mm -hmm. so I think this is one finding that you that probably wouldn't dispute. Yeah, that one hasn't changed, yeah, that's uh, right. That one but, but, but that brings me to, to the media. Maybe, you know, he was thinking, well, once we know what Congress is doing, it's going to be harder to build this reputation based on a trash in Congress because voters are going to see what's happening in Congress. But maybe it's actually easier because now I can go on Twitter and I can, uh, I can just portray Congress as, as very dysfunctional with one tweet and one uh, performance uh, on Fox News. So, uh, Yeah, I agree. I think that's, I mean, that's actually been, it's been a puzzle for political scientists for a long time. What, I mean, approval of Congress is very low, but approval of your member of Congress is pretty high. Why is that? And I'm sure individual members of Congress play into that. They say the institution is terrible and it's broken, but don't worry, I'm there fighting the good fight. And when there's there's not a lot of local news coverage actually covering what are they actually doing. It makes it easier for them to say that, and, and people, you know, people don't have any way of refuting it, I suppose. If we see what's happening in Congress, and because media focus on the most uh, sort of controversial issues that are, uh, you know, controversial events in Congress, maybe because we see that our perception of Congress as dysfunctional uh, is uh, cemented. And Your then, member of Congress really is better than it, AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Exactly, and, and then, so, then yeah. it says they have no choice as saying, like, well, you know, we are not like them. No? Uh -huh. like, even if, if they wanted to change their strategy, they, 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 just, uh, they, they just can't. It is curious, though, that that play continues to work and has been sustained for so long. This, this strategy of running for Congress by running against it and everything's broken but not me, I will deliver you. At what point do we say, uh, 
wait, something here, mm -hmm. something about that appeal is not working, yeah. right? Something about that is wrong. Um, how do we then think about collective accountability? I mean, it's hard to maintain because we elect members one at a time, and so it, you can see how it has legs. But it, at some point, the, the argument that's of the form, we've got to actually set to work on fixing these institutions. We've got to set to work on finding ways of engaging my colleagues, and that I fail to fix those institutions and meaningfully engage my colleagues is an indictment of, of me who's running for Congress, right? And that year after year, I can just say everybody, it's all a trash heap, everything's on fire, but believe in me again and again and again. At some point, you'd say, But this is a big downside enough. of increased polarization, which is that the, the choices are so stark that you might, you might not be happy with, say, if you're a little bit left of center politically, you might not be happy with your Democratic incumbent, but you're not going to vote for the Republican. They're even worse, right? Whereas, you know, if, if they were a little closer on policy, then you might be more willing to vote for them based on competence and, and effort and other things like that. So this is, this is a way in which things have definitely gotten worse since, since the 70s, even if they were already not, not great then. <laughs> That seems right. Again, and I think like, the explanation, maybe I'm reading too much in defendant, but I think that the explanation that he would offer about this phenomenon is, again, about relations. It's about who do you know. And I, I know and I trust my own legislator, who I'm engaging right there in front of me. And I see a lot of bad things in the world, but I'm not being visited by those other legislators. And they are sort of distant um, and, and obscure. And so this, this appeal of the person who's in front of me, who seems like a real sensible human being, who's breaking bread with me, you know, and, and, pour, and filling up my, you know, refilling my <laughs> coffee mug, right? Well, okay, all, all is well and good. Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, it's very easy to dislike people that we see on TV, but it's hard to dislike someone who is really friendly and really, you know, asks me about how my mother is doing and all this stuff. So, so I think that, that that's, that's the explanation of this puzzle, that um, we see this craziness on TV and we think everyone is crazy, but then we see this one person coming home and this person actually seems like a human being, as you said. And, 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 and that's what sustains 90% re-election rate for Congress people and 10% uh, and, and, and approval of probably even That part, I actually right don't understand that part. I, you know, Duke Cunningham was my member of Congress when I was a kid. And, uh, and I met him and I didn't like him. I didn't think like, a, you know, and I didn't know exactly how much of a criminal he was, but, but I wasn't shocked when I found out he was a criminal. Um, but, what, what, <laughs> but, what, but you never called him Duke, right? You never called him, and, and they, they quote, Fenno quotes a legislator who, who's one of his constituents calls him by his first name, who, and then he turns over to Fenno and says, anytime you know, one of my own constituents called me by my first name, I've got their support locked in. They can never do, right? once you get that kind of close relationship, it's, it's gold. It's electoral gold. So again, it's all about relation. Maybe not for you, because you're looking up at these <laughs> People, I'm just less scouting. enamored by celebrities in general. Yeah, maybe. but not know. so with, with this, these This folks. is obviously a major aside, but if you have like, you, someone, someone you know meets a celebrity, and they, every time they're like, they were just so wonderful. They ever, no one ever, you know, like, what, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I'm sure they weren't. You know, like you met Jack Nicholson. Like, I'm sure he wasn't wonderful. He was. Just he the, was lovely. <laughs> he was charming. <laughs> He was shorter than you thought. <laughs> I mean, when Queen died, you could hear all those people saying, like, I had a special connection with Queen because once I was at the same event as the Queen was at. And, mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's amazing how this, like, one little, you know, 
short uh, yeah. interaction, which is not even an interaction, <laughs> makes people just completely uh, forget about that there's so much to the queen. It's, right. So, so I, 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 I do actually sympathize with this, <laughs> <laughs> with this, uh, with this um, line of thinking that uh, it's very hard to break up with people. It's very hard. So if this person comes to your village, your county, and drinks coffee with you, it's hard to then turn around and vote for someone that you haven't met. And moreover, you see on TV and they seem like a cyborg, not a you know, nice, friendly human being who has a wife and children in the same school as I do. So, um, so, so I, think, I think this think part of the story really, really rang true to me. Which is why they devote so much time and resources, legislators do, to engaging in this kind of activity. This is why, I mean, Fenda's first move in this paper is to say, we're fixating on what's going on in Congress. It turns out much of the job, much of the act, political action is in pouring coffee with your constituents. And we need to understand that is central to not just their strategy, but their self-understanding. And you're looking, you look skeptically, was that ever true? But then the follow-on is, is that true today? Which is, we live in a world in which it's about fundraising and it's about all kinds of strategizing and party brands and bifurcated media markets and these kinds of things. But for like, the, the move that Fenno's gonna make, right, one is to say, let's stop fixating exclusively on what's happening within Congress. Let's think about that third of the time that they spend engaging their constituents. And that we as political scientists would do well to soak and poke in our own work, right? That, to, to think outside of the models that we carry around and actually observe firsthand, up close, about what these legislators are actually doing. And so I, I guess my, I'm gonna put forward my bottom line, can I do that? Which is, I kind of like that last point, that we should be spending more time in looking at what they're doing. In, in my own research, I don't, I don't spend any time with presidents, um, and I don't think I'll have much, many opportunities to do so, but to get, to sort of try to better understand the daily operations of it, uh, the people who we're studying and how they allot their time as an object worthy of, of study. We should do it in a way that isn't entirely open-ended or naive. I think we should do it thinking critically, but by opening up space that allows for the possibility of discovery. It isn't just that we're going to take our model and look for the evidence that reaffirms it, is to allow in our kind of ethnography that he wants to call us all to undertake um, allow for the possibility of discovery it seems like a good thing. I agree with you. I do worry about what uh, Anthony is worried that, uh, you know, it's hard to really do this kind of research and be considered a serious researcher because there's all these concerns that we have and at the end of the day everyone would like to be soaking and poking as opposed to you know <laughs> proving theorems and running yeah. regressions it's fun so so I, I don't think we will ever really reward this kind of research uh and yet heavily. he was rewarded in a big way right in 77 true yes so so I'm conflicted in the sense that I, I do not see a path forward. You know, I do not see a way to really elevate uh, this research, this kind of research. But I do see the value of it. It was really interesting for me to to read. Uh, you know, this this sort of like a story about how he perceives the members of Congress when he watches them in the wild, and and you know, it made me think a little bit more about the models I write and the regressions that people run. And uh, and I think that's a valuable addition that we are a little bit more careful now about. Uh, what we are going to do in our own research. 
My bottom line is a little more skeptical, <laughs> as you would imagine. I mean, of course, I think this is an interesting paper. I did learn, I did learn a bit, and I, and, I, and I think it's valuable that some people are doing this kind of work. I certainly want to, wouldn't rely, want to rely exclusively on this kind of work to think about what are members of Congress thinking about and what's motivating them and so forth. Um, I'm glad that Will Howe, the scholar, is doing the work that he's doing and not spending time chasing around presidents <laughs> and trying to see how they spend their day. There are journalists that do that kind of thing. There are journalists that can tell me that President Trump was in bed at 6 p.m. with a Big Mac watching cable news. I didn't need scholars to tell me that, and, I, and your time is better spent on actual scholarship. <laughs> Although the prospect of eating a Big Mac with a president, that'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> All right, there we go. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thank Thanks. you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodup. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.